This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. And this one's called A Conspiracy of Consciousness. Um, this is going to be the first part of this uh, talk that I found. You know, what I do is I listen to the talk and make some notes and get the highlights, but it, unfortunately I just don't have the time to listen to the whole thing word for word, sorry to say. And uh, so put this one on, and you know, we've had a lot of great podcasts here. Uh, talks, uh, rather, that uh, we put into podcasts. But this one, I started making the notes, and then I'm keeping making notes. I'm like I'm at the, the lecture or something, you know, making notes, because I was making notes for myself, uh, after all. So, uh, this is, um, I'm just going to go through some of this, and I, it's, I know it's slightly redundant, but I guess I just want to, and some of it, of course, is uh, very much highlights, uh, you know, I can relate to so many different experiences that uh, show exactly what he's talking about, which is what happened when I first heard him all those years ago. So it's interesting that this is still having, uh, you know, finding uh, stuff that I find totally relatable and useful. Anyhow, this goes on about how can we look at our life experiences in a way that liberates us from suffering and liberates whoever we come into contact with from suffering. So this is like a, he starts out with, you know, this is a basic uh, premise, how to enjoy the unfolding storyline of your life without being trapped by it. You know, and we, we've talked about in, in this other podcast, in fact, we just did. Uh, mind rolling. Uh, David and I talked about uh, this this particular article that was written, so it's all very current. It's called The Gospel of Me. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, he was, uh, Ramdas, of course, was talking about this uh, exact, uh, you know, using this exact metaphor, the storyline of your life. And isn't that, you know, as soon as you wake up, you start the movie, as Krishnadas calls it, the movie of your life. So the idea is how to how to delight in it and how to enjoy the the whole deal, uh, but how not to get caught and trapped by these roles. Um, and then funny thing, he says, see, uh, not that funny. See your mother as a friend, not just as a mother, and that's an example of not being caught completely in a role, in this case, uh, mother-son. And, uh, you know, I just thought about that. And I, my mother who passed uh, earlier this year, the first thing that came out of my mouth when we did, we did a, a memorial was my mother was one of my best friends. And I just thought about this and I thought, wow, I did manage to, I really did manage to get out of that, that role Obviously not completely, but in a great part, I had that. So uh, I was really touched uh, by that. We start to be so identified with our symbolic value and the role we are that we starve to death 
you know, so this is all around, you know, how we identify ourselves and walk around this world and project, uh, you know, a whole host of personas, how we, you know, uh, how we dress, the clothes we wear, the way we walk, the way we look at other people. You just start to, to see this this grand facade that uh, that we have made. So he, this is it's really great him going into this stuff. And, and um, there are a couple of things I do want to uh, just read from. Um, begin to see your life experiences as grace as a set of opportunities through which you can become free. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is, um, that's a touchstone for sure for all of us. And, and uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I also look when, when I'm doing this stuff for sound bites for our words of wisdom. Which, uh, oh, I'm suddenly thinking of something that I meant to do, and uh, I've been remiss. Because some of this lecture, I do believe, is, um, is part of what this Ramdas's new book emanates from. Um, and he talked about these subjects from where he is now, and there was included his... Uh, you know, his he went and edited with uh, Ramesh his talks and so on and so forth. And this makes up a bunch of what polishing the mirror, how to live from your spiritual heart is all about. So that was another uh, big connection, big, big connection. Go out and get it because that will help. Uh, it's actually a, a, a Love Server Member Foundation publication. Um, and it will help, uh, it will help keep, uh, doing all of the things that we're doing, uh, from the foundation, including ramdas.org and the retreats and the, and the films and God knows we have podcasts and what I'm doing right now. So love to have your support in any way. Uh, so, uh, here's what, uh, it's bizarre to get to the realization that there are no errors in the game that the ones that have been handed to you, the experiences, the opportunities, the phenomena that have been handed to you were tailor-made for you. All of your neurosis and sores, all of life's stuff, there is no error in the game. Sores, sores, problems in Yiddish. And it's like a, you know, <laughs> Jewish... Catskills humor. Um, so th this gives you an idea. God, I, I'm not going to go on here. I have I have no, pages more of notes. I mean, it's insane. Um, God. All right. Since this is going to be in two parts, um, I you know we don't do this a lot, but but this whole thing uh, is is pretty incredible. So we're absolutely going to do it. Um, and and this okay. The last thing I knew we had one more. The uh, and this is what this talk is about: conspiracy of consciousness. It really comes 
So we all project. We are projective systems, all of us. And the projections coming from you and the ones coming from them, they all say the same thing. We all have the same caughtness. That's a real conspiracy. And the predicament is, as you awaken, you realize you have been the perpetrator of the conspiracy you got caught in. That I love. That is fantastic. Let's go from there. So, uh, again, Ramdas, here and now, another of our podcasts. Thanks uh, for, for listening. Thanks for the support. And do go out and pick up the book, Polishing the Mirror. It is just essential Ramdas uh, to actually do what he was talking about. In other words, how to be here now. See you next time. There is great delight in uh, in tuning through a variety of different methods, and really looking to each method to um, move you in a, in its own unique way, but also keep opening you. So uh, be very uh, generous in your opening to methods, because uh, if you bring to them a pure heart and a yearning to be free. They will serve you in that way, uh, way you get your karmuppance with methods. <laughs> if you use them for power, you get power, and then you're stuck with the power. If you use them to, to reinforce your separateness, you get left in your separateness. What we are doing is we're reviewing how we can look at our life experience in a way that liberates us from suffering and liberates those with whom we come in contact from suffering. And you'd say, well, that's a negative way of looking at it. You could say, we are learning how to be happy with what is. And the flip that occurs that we're really working with is to figure out how to enjoy the unfolding storyline of your life without being trapped by it. How to delight in it, how to enjoy the play of the uniqueness of each form and how it works and how you interplay and interact without being trapped in the narrowness of it. I have watched again and again in this society people get defined into a role and they start to be scrunched up into that role, and that role traps them. For a child to see their mother as a friend, not a mother. For a prisoner and a guard to see each other as fellow human beings instead of just prisoner and guard. There are how many roles we get trapped in. And when the role has a lot of symbolic power to it, we get very trapped in it like uh, wealth or beauty or, or something, some uniqueness, positive or uh, negative. We start to be so identified with our symbolic value and the role we're in that we starve to death because we're, we're trapped. It's like wearing an outfit that's so flamboyant that everybody responds to the outfit and nobody notices you. I meet many people who are so trapped in their roles and trapped in their symbolic value within the society. And we all present ourselves symbolically. 
We all project who we think we are in the clothes we wear, in the way we walk, in the way we look at other people. That's all the image we have of ourselves projected outward. Sometimes that's very, very strong. You're so busy being somebody that everybody reacts to your somebodyness, and nobody reacts to your nobodyness. Nobody reacts to the part of you that's the I, not the me. And so it's interesting to learn in this lifetime how to inhabit roles lightly. How to inhabit them with love and with joy and with passion and with emptiness. How to delight in the game, in the dance, in the leela, in the play. And begin to see your life experiences as grace. As a set of opportunities through which you can become free. They were handed to you. It's bizarre to get to the realization that there are no errors in the game. That the ones that have been handed to you were tailor-made for you. All of your neuroses and your sorrows and your problems and life's all the stuff. No error. Would you just conceive of that possibility for a moment? You have to buy in. I mean, that's my sugar to business. Just conceive of it for a moment, that there are no errors in the game. In the sense that you as a soul are a karmic entity. And that karmic entity, using senses, using forms, creates out of the stuff of the universe those forms through which its attachments and aversions create, through which it interacts in order, in the awakening phase, to go beyond the attractions and the aversions. In other words, to get free of your attractions and aversions, you get to get them to manifest, to deal with them. And then you deal with them without juicing them up with intention, but just being with them. This is very weird, very dense stuff. But it's really uh, tasty. Because you begin to look at your life, the curriculum that's unfolding, it's fun for me, like because I play with my guru, who's a, a dead guru. I mean, he's a he's an illusion. He's my he's my um, imaginary playmate. I mean, if you're going to have an imaginary playmate, pick one that is wise, funny, a rascal, cosmic giggle, and very loving. And dead is really helpful. <laughs> And so what comes towards me is in, in the game he and I play, what he's laying on me to free me. Now that's real crazy. You know? Well, what do you got in store for me today? Well, look at this one. Ah, uh, so. I mean, there are wonderful little lessons in my life along the way. And uh, I just experience my life as an unfolding curriculum. Now, Maharaji, as Sam Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, didn't say, well, in 1995, he will have this happen. It's not that level. It is merely the dialogue between the ego, the soul, and awareness. An inner dialogue going in which out of awareness these phenomena are manifesting and dissolving. And which particular ones are attended to or noticed is the soul's karmic determination. And then how you live within it is the ego's game.
And by the way, just to uh, clean up so that I don't overstep bounds here, there are many, 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 many other planes of consciousness. I mean, those of you that have studied any of the literature about astral and uh, causal planes and, and uh, all the planes that Sri Aurobindo talks about and the overmind and so on, the oversoul, um, you're dealing with something that is not conceptual, all, all these planes, and you're imposing some conceptual structure to define the differences between the chakras deal with planes of consciousness. So the soul is not only doing work on this plane, but is doing work on a lot of other planes as well. Karma is being run through. So a lot of your dreams, which may not make sense on this plane, have function. It's like your soul's dreaming. And then you wake up and you remember a little bit, and the ego tries to figure out what it's about. But it's really the soul's business. So that's fun. I mean, just using soul lightly now. Don't use it in the heavy sense because it's because as as every buddhist knows it ultimately dissolves it's just a step on a ladder you use in order to extricate yourself from your ego trip and be careful the word extrication does not mean dissociation or denial it does not mean pushing away it means breaking the identity with but i can have my MG, and it can be my MG, like last night there was an old car parade, and everybody was busy being their old car. I'm a DeSoto, and I'm a Packard, and I'm a cut Chevy. And you could see the identity with the form. So I can say it's my MG and be identified with the MG, or I can say... I mean, it's, I love it. It's a wonderful car. I take care of it, and I certainly enjoy driving it, and it's an MG. And I can say it's a body. I love it. I enjoy it. I'm working with it. I'm doing the best I can with it. <laughs> it is slowly decaying. It's probably going to decay and die, I assume. I have no reason not to think it's, to think it's not going. And the interesting question is, how do I manage that temple? The temple for consciousness. How do I take care of my body? How do I do it without being trapped by taking care of it? You will watch that the minute you get something wrong with you, your consciousness will narrow. If you're not very careful until you're busy being your symptom. And the, the caricature of all the old folks sitting on the bench in St. Petersburg or in Arizona having their morning organ recital describing <laughs> and you you the minute you start to cultivate these techniques of mindfulness you begin to see the game that you're playing the life you're living the way it's unfolding the roles you're in what you'll learn is that you have a unique karmic predicament and that will manifest in certain ways at each moment. And to the extent that you push against the manifestation, it takes a lot of juice. To the extent you cling to the manifestation, it takes a lot of juice. And ultimately what you're doing is dancing deeply but lightly. There's no clinging. The statement, hold on tightly, let go lightly. Be in it. 
but don't cling. And the to separate, it's interesting because when we love somebody, we want to possess them. We want more of them. We want to collect. We keep wanting to hold it. And we keep getting all of these old, moldering, dead butterflies in our collection. You know, old loves that were a moment of love and then we destroyed it through possessing it. And the letting go and letting go and letting go, holding tightly, letting go. Holding tightly of your interpretation of the moment and letting go. Like what is this moment? There are dozens of ways, it is, it's hundreds of ways. If each person defined this moment, we would define it in each in our own unique way. And yet we are sharing a moment. And if you get into, that's my take, and this is the only reality. Uh, I work a lot with the third Chinese patriarch of Zen. And um, I just take a f phrases. I mean, I, I always work with the first phrases, which you've all heard. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And you think about all the preferences you have. Color, food, people places, comforts, experiences. Think of them, think of them, think of the thousands. You're a sea of opinions and prejudices and attitudes and wants and dislikes and so on. And think of how many times you've gotten caught in them, of being a person with a, an opinion. And feel how contracting that is. And you say, but I've got to have opinions. I mean, how will I know whether to walk across the street or not? Now can you think about having opinions and not having opinions? Stretch your mind a little bit to allow for the possibility that you can functionally have opinions, but that you are not trapped by them, that you're lightly in them. Yeah, sure. If you say to me, I say, gee, it's cold in here. Could we warm it up? But I'm not spending the rest of the day having been cold all just then. I don't hold it. Now, new moment. 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 Here are just two of the uh, phrases, the stanzas, shlokas. With a single stroke, we are freed from bondage. Nothing clings to us, and we hold to nothing. All is empty, clear, self-illuminating. Third plane, awareness. Clear, illuminating, present. Ah, yes. Sees the soul unfolding its karma, sees the ego at work. Awareness doesn't see it, it bees it. It's all within it. All is empty, clear, and self-illuminating with no exertion of the mind's power. You don't have to think about it. You just rest in it. Here, thought, feeling, knowledge, and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. And you could take just those lines and work with them for a whole year. Believe me. These are methods we're talking about now. They're methods for stretching your consciousness so that you allow yourself to inhabit the fullness of your being, which is ego and soul and awareness. Now, there's just a few lines in the next one I want to read. To come directly into harmony with this reality. Now, it's describing another method. Just simply say when doubts arise, not to. 
Not two. In this not two, nothing is separate. Nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And finally, emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before your eyes. Phenomena are arising. We're all here together, and we're all here in a quality of emptiness, in which if you go back in your mind far enough behind the me and the I and what the senses are telling you, just keep drawing the awareness back and back and back. What you come into is just empty presence. And yet all the phenomena are here. But the mind isn't grabbing at the phenomena. It's not clinging, it's not avoiding. It's not pulling, it's not pushing. It's not coming, it's not going. It's just, ah. Another moment. Ah. Ah. Maharaj used to say to me, Ramdas, you shouldn't be with people very much. You should be alone. You should take your food alone, you should eat alone, you should be alone. So I went back to the hotel where all of the devotees, the Western devotees, were hanging out. And I put a sign up on my door that said, Do not disturb. And I stayed in my room. Two days later, a couple that was with us had a fight during the night. The next morning, they were with Maharaji, and Maharaji said, You were fighting? And they said, Yes. And he said, When were you fighting? And they said, During the night. Well, did you go to Ramdas? No, he had a sign on his door saying, do not disturb. <laughs> you didn't go to Ramdas? He wasn't there for you? And he looked at me with disgust. <laughs> and I was about to say to him, but Maharaji, you said I was supposed to be alone. But in those conflicting messages, I found a message. Because at first you have to be alone by pulling back from people. But you understand what the game is. Finally, the game is to be with people, yet always be alone. Now, how many of you take the feeling of aloneness and feel it as pathology? Have you ever thought of flipping it around? Just that little flip. There's an incredible line about the nature of the potential of relationship. This beautiful quote from the I Ching. And I, it's one of my favorite quotes to use at weddings. The master said, life leads the thoughtful person on a path of many windings. Now the course is checked, now it runs straight again. Here winged thoughts may pour freely forth in words, but there the heavy burden of knowledge must be shut away in silence. But when two people are at one in their inmost hearts, they shatter even the strength of iron or of bronze. And when two people understand each other in their inmost hearts, their words are sweet and strong like the fragrance of orchids. Now we're talking about souls hanging out together. Souls who don't need anything from each other. 
they both are just watching the unfolding. The unfolding on the ego level may involve their interaction, the roles through which they interact. But the souls are just sharing a delight in the unfolding of the dance. At certain stages in the journey, if you have a choice, it's wonderful to have other beings around you, sometimes called the satsang or the sangha, a community of other beings like are gathered in this room that recognize what the journey or the curriculum is about that we are born into here. And they help you. We help each other. And it's a very precious thing to have other people you meet and know that are journeying on the path together. And it's interesting to examine the contracts we make with fellow human beings. Because most of the relationships we enter into are at the ego level, in which I am somebody and I enter into a contract with you as somebody. And usually the nature of the contract is, I won't bug your somebodyness if you don't bug mine. I'll allow you to be who you think you are if you'll allow me to be who I think I am. Basically is what we're saying to each other. The difference is that when you meet with satsang, you say, I am trapped in thinking I'm somebody. You are trapped. Could we help each other get free? Now, the peculiar circumstance is when you make that contract with somebody and they come up and say, you're trapped, wake up, you say, you're trapped. What do you know about it? Because when somebody is trapped, they are trapped, <laughs> meaning they think it's real. And in their reality, your criticism is seen as a criticism, not as a helpful hint. So if you're going to enter into the relation of sangha or satsang with that somebody, you've got to realize that truth is a little scary to live with. It's much better to live with truth, however, than with the kind of numbing deception of, of all of us making believe a reality is real. I mean, when you look at the way, the violence that consistency has done to your truth, it's staggering. Because when you understand that you move in and out of all these different levels, like Maharaji, when I was with him, he'd just be floating around in levels. I remember once he said, he looked at it, was he like he just came out of a trance, he says, all the money in the world is mine. It's a great line, isn't it? I mean, I try to think of the ramifications of that. And the Pope thought he had some. All the money in the world is mine. And then a few minutes later, he's just, and he looks around and he says, I can do nothing. God does everything. I can do nothing. God does everything. Now, at one level, it's just like the Ananda Ma quotes yesterday. One of them is, I serve my husband as if they were God. That's a dualistic devotional practice or path, or statement in dualism. In dualism, you spend your time loving the beloved. In non-dualism, you are the beloved. You exist on both planes. How do you train your awareness so that it doesn't get trapped in one plane and then cut off your access to the other planes? That's what the issue is. And you begin to see how your definitions of yourself keep trapping you let alone the projections that you have to other people, let alone their projections on you. So you and I live in a sea of projective systems. 
some of which are coming out of our own desires, needs, fears, attractions, aversions, preferences, prejudices, opinions. And some of which are coming from everybody else's. And the question of how do you dance through all that without ending up completely caught in it, especially when the ones coming out of you and the ones coming out of them say the same thing. That's a real conspiracy. See, the predicament is as you awake and you realize you have been the perpetrator of the conspiracy you got caught in. It's not like it's not real paranoia. It's not like they did it to me. They've got this terrible conspiracy. You're it. You are it. We are it. We are the conspiracy. And the interesting question is, when you extricate your awareness from being part of the conspiracy, what happens? If you're just doing it in a half-baked way at first, you're busy telling everybody you've gotten free of the conspiracy, and then they usually imprison you somewhere. <laughs> because you don't get free of the conspiracy. But a mature person isn't in the conspiracy and is not in the conspiracy even to the point of putting down the conspiracy. They're just not in the conspiracy. They're living in a different universe. And therefore, their being is free of that conceptual homogeneous field. And that freedom is what they offer to another human being that frees them. And it's as if we all meet through our prison cells high in there. What's it like? Do you know how to get out? No, do you? And to see the maturity of being able to extricate your awareness from entrapment in role without violence and fulfilling the roles at the same time, but fulfilling them from a different, different, different place. When I took care of dad, my father, during the last years of his life, when I first started to take care of him, as I've told you before, some of you, I did it so much out of righteousness. I mean, I was giving up something to go and make my apartment in the basement of his house and do that as my base camp. And when you're 50 years old, to go back to being Richard in a house where somebody else is the father, when, I, you know, I wasn't even Ramdas in the house. It's very schizophrenic. And I was righteous. I was milking it. And people would say, aren't you good taking care of your father? And I'd say, well, somebody has to do it. And I'd, I'd just get what I could out of it, you know. Like, <laughs> But, you know, any tack you take with your mind gets boring after a while. I mean, you can only milk righteousness so many changing of pampers and so many feeding of food and so many, you know, you can only, I'm righteously helping you down the steps. I'm righteously, you know. You get bored with any trip. They're all too finite. So then uh, I moved into another one. I thought that one fell away, and I decided I was, my father was karma yoga. So I was using my father to get enlightened for the benefit of all beings. And I didn't necessarily have to tell him that, but basically that's what it was. I'm helping you with non-attachment. Now we are moving here with non-attachment. Oh, Monday, pin me. Oh, yes. I was really pucky yogi serving my father. And that got boring after a while. 
And it just kept arriving at different levels of being together until finally the mind trips were gone. The conscious, the, the archetypal storylines were dissolving. And all there was was he was being and I was being and the nature of the way of things in the karmic unfolding of our lives as father, child, at this stage in our lives had this particular dynamic going in which that was the part that awareness played through him and that was the part awareness played through me and there was nothing personal involved in it at all. It was like a tree becoming a tree or a flower blooming. It was just the natural way of things. It was, as they say in Zen Buddhism, nothing special. It was nothing out of the ordinary. It was just the way of things. It was like tuning into the harmony of the universe. And when you are tuned, when you're listening to what does it mean that I'm a political entity? What does it mean that I'm a social entity? What does it mean that I'm a religious entity? What does it mean that I'm a sexual entity? What does it mean that I'm a cultural entity? What does it mean that etc., etc.? I'm a, a biotic community entity. Hearing the nature, how freedom comes through the investing in form, freedom through form. Statement in the Heart Sutra, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. The art is not to deny form in order to grab at emptiness, but to have the emptiness and fulfill the form. And when you quiet down enough and listen in your own life to hear your unique manifestation, and you're really quiet, you get through the obsession with individualism that you had as an ego in our culture at this moment, and you realize you are part of systems. You're part of family, you're part of all of these different communities, ethnic groups, all of the stuff. And then you bring to that, with your awareness, the listening to hear how you manifest within that system in a way that is not with attraction and not with aversion, but really playing your part. Playing your part. Dancing the dance. So I listen and I hear I have certain skills. I have certain connections, so I have certain opportunities to talk to certain people. Those things, when I listen to hear, how will I manifest, say, in the political field? I hear, well, there are these opportunities, there is this skill. When as I listen, that comes through and I can say to somebody, dup, 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 or whatever I can say, and it can enter into my way of being a political person. And in the same way, I'm part of the economic systems of the, of the physical plane. How can I honor the economics of it? Not by putting it down, even though it traps most people. And not by elevating it to worship, as most people also do. I mean, if you look at the dollar bill and that wonderful pyramid that the Masons have on there, with the top, the eye separated from the rest of it, you understand that all of the solidity of the whole system only works when it is in connection with what the eye of God, the eye of the one, the balance to another plane. That is, that's a perfect description of planes of consciousness on every dollar bill. And when I listen, 
I say, well, what have I got to contribute? And what, what kind of a bargain should I make about money, about, about economics? To fulfill it, should I amass a lot of money and give it away? Or hold it or spend it? Or what should I do? There's no rule in the book about what you do. Each person has to listen to hear. I mean, I deal with people that are, that have hardly anything. They are way below the poverty level and they are at peace. I know people like that. In India, I certainly know people like that. I know people who are so wealthy, they are on the Fortune 500 wealthiest people in America. Some of them are happy, some of them aren't. But often, they are more trapped by money than the people who don't have it. And then many times, the people who don't have it are obsessed with it. And the people who have some are afraid they're going to lose it, or they won't have enough. And the amount of consciousness caught in the domain of economics is amazing. And I found myself working uh, with the business community because I looked around and I said, what I have to share is Dharma, what I've learned, what I've been doing for the past 25, 30 years. Since business is the major social institution in the world at the moment, it's more powerful than nation states, it's more powerful than religions, can I play with the beast? So I got involved with business people. And I started to hang out in a group called the Social Venture Network. They're easy business people to be with. They're all people like Ben and Jerry and Reebok and the Levi's and people that are good persons in business. But the conspiracy within business to see business as a certain way that it has to be, this is all ego level. It's very interesting when you're in India and you meet somebody who does business as Dharma. And you understand there is an incredible thing for the West to learn about business, about how you do business as Dharma. It's the same way as how you raise a child as Dharma. It's the same way as how you make love as Dharma. It's the same way as how you do any relationship in terms of Dharma. Dharma meaning how can you be in this form in a way that does not create suffering, in a way that liberates? How can I act in a way that does not exacerbate suffering? That seems very logical to me, even to my mind. Ben and Jerry told me at one point, it's been published, but uh, Ben and Jerry said that they started out, you know, in a garage with an ice cream making. They tried to decide whether to be donut makers or ice cream makers, and they, ice cream seemed easier, so they made ice cream. They were two hippies, and they made ice cream, and, and pretty soon they were making more and more ice cream, and they were having other ice cream places, and they were suddenly in business. And they said, we don't want to be in business. What the hell? I, we hate business. <laughs> And uh, Ben had a friend, an old man in New Jersey, and he went to visit him, who had been in business for many years, and he said, Ben says, I'm going to give this up. I don't like business. The guy says, if you don't like it, why don't you change it? And that's an interesting question. How do you take business and make it dharmic? Like, who is a competitor? Is it them or is it us? I mean, the, the, the fun story I enjoy telling at SVN, which, uh, again, many of you know, but it's the story about uh, when I put out uh, with a group of people, we put out uh, 
a beautiful uh, four-record album with a beautiful booklet and a lovely box. It was called Love, Serve, Remember, and it was was a mail-order item for four and a half dollars some years ago. And uh, my father took a look at it. He was a major business player, and he said, pretty good product. I mean, he didn't listen to it, but he looked at it, and I said, yeah, and he said... Boy, it looks like, what are you charging, four and a half dollars? You could get a lot more for this than that. I said, you're probably right. He says, you could charge $10 for this. Yeah, he said, would fewer people buy it? I said, no. He said, I don't understand you. Are you against capitalism? What have I raised here? I mean, I don't mind you being a a Hindu, but you're not against capitalism. And I said, I try to think of how to explain to him. And I said, Dad, you remember last year, Dad was also a lawyer besides being a business person. And I said, remember last year you tried a case for Henry? Yeah. I remember you worked quite hard on that. Yeah, I had to spend a lot of time at the law library. That was a tough case, damn it. But you won it, yeah. I said, well, you know, you are, your firm is known for charging pretty hefty fees. What did you charge Henry? It must have been a mint. Don't be out of your mind. It's Uncle Henry. Of course I didn't. I said, well, that's my problem. When you can find somebody who isn't Uncle Henry, I'll rip him off. It's interesting to create systems in which you see others as how can you get the top thing from them, get the most from them, them. Not from us, but from them, for the benefit of us. And what you create is a certain kind of boundary of your consciousness that it's really hard to get through. And you end up being isolated by it. To examine in businesses the relation between a CEO who takes something like 80 times the salary of an employee and then the CEO says we're all one big family does that mean that CEO is worth 80 times is that a CEO working 80 times harder is that benefit that much the cost of that money is not free to the system the cost of that money is extremely harsh on the ability of all of us to be us. Now, I mean, I can't be a purist about it, but I can hear the directions it has to go. The question of how do you live with us? And so you look and you say, at any business, who are all the stakeholders? There are the, there's the board of directors, there are the investors, there are the employees, there is the staff, there are the competitors, there are the, uh, the suppliers. They are all stakeholders in the game. And ultimately, the issue is, what is a way to be with all of these stakeholders to optimize the relief of suffering and the amount of compassion in the system? This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org 
and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.